Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. And the direct-to-consumer playbook at this point is pretty well-known. Brooklinen is right on track. The online-born betting brand made about $48 million in revenue last year and says it's on track to be a $100 million company. In typical DTC fashion, it's venturing into physical stores and just experimented with a pop-up store in Soho. It's also expanding to bathware and more is coming. Naturally, when I sat down with Rich Fulop, co-founder and CEO of Brooklinen, I had a lot to ask him. On this episode, Rich and I talk about the marketing channels that show the most growth and potential, the stretchability of the brand beyond the betting category, and how Brooklinen designs a customer journey and experience online, and much, much more. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Rich. Welcome to Making Marketing. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Okay. So this morning, went through the entire Brooklyn experience because Great. I am in the market for a comforter. Huh? Um, the most fascinating thing to me is sort of how you're taking people through kind of the customer journey. And I know there's tons of different angles here and people are coming into the site through different places and all of that. But talk us through kind of how you've envisioned people kind of experiencing Brooklyn for the first time, especially somebody coming in, coming in for the first time to the site and all the different things that they're hit with. Because I had everything from a 10% off, thank mm-hmm. you, very generous <laughs> discount to a chat box popping up to an offer for a referral. Um, so there's a, clearly a lot of different ways that you're bringing this customer into the Brooklyn universe, but I want you to sort of go through it with us first. Sure. Um so as our the company's grown and the marketing strategy's grown, we have so many different touch points and so many different opportunities to interact with customers. So it's really about getting smarter about what actually triggered them to come to the site. Um, in your case, it sounds like you came directly to the site, but you might have had a different experience if you came to us from Facebook or from Instagram or from a Google search and mm-hmm. so on. So as you get smarter and you kind of figure out what people's intent are, then you do better, better and better segmentation. So... You know, I take it this would would have been your first purchase. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ten percent off is an incentive for new customers to kind of get in the door and take a chance with us. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do that for every transaction, and we don't always do that. We're always testing what that is, but mm-hmm. um, it's just about finding the optimal customer journey to mm-hmm. get to check out. Can you walk me through? Because I mean, obviously, when you guys started, um, you know, one of those. Uh, early days, obviously, Kickstarter mm-hmm. days, then obviously growing, growing, growing. How has your marketing strategy overall evolved? Because I think for, in some ways, some of this is a function of the company you were and the company mm-hmm. you are today. But a lot of this really is a function of how the market itself has evolved. Um, you know, totally. The, I know, totally. I know that, and I know in the past sort of you've spoken to us for stories about kind of Facebook, you've spoken to us um, in just new ways that you've actually started growing the company. But those two things have come uh, come at a different point and every founder's experience is different. So walk me through a little bit of that evolution of that strategy from early days to today. Yeah. So Facebook was not thrilled with my feedback <laughs> last year that Facebook I gave Digiday <laughs> on our Facebook market <laughs> experience. But uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, you take Facebook, for example, it's a totally different platform than it was when we launched you know, four or five years ago at this mm-hmm. point. Um, the customer base is, well, not the customer, I guess the uh, the user base is very, very different than it was years ago. Um, Instagram's evolved, evolved a lot. And really when you start 
when you start a brand, you start a company, it's very much like it. If you build it, they will come. And if it's a good product, people will be interested in it and people will come to you. And that was the Kickstarter days. That was the early days. There was, mm-hmm. you know, people that were early adopters on that. But as... And you did a lot of word of mouth in the early days. A ton of word of mouth. For obvious we, reason. You didn't have a ton of money to yeah, spend on marketing. no money. And basically only money for the product itself and really to build the basics of the website. So we had to get smarter about it. So we, the best marketing channel by far at any stage of business is people and referrals. So assuming the product is great and you take care of your customers, then they should help you grow the company really if, and you have to ask them and interact with them and give them incentive to do so and reason to do so. But that is absolutely the best way to grow a company. And that's the first marketing channel. It's also free if you do it right, because it will be pretty natural and organic the way it happens. Um, as time has gone on, I mean, at any given time, we have about 30 different marketing channels at going live. 30. 30. So, Sometimes it'll be 20 when we have certain that are off. That's basically. still a lot. Yeah, yeah. I thought I you mean, were going to say like three. No, yeah, 30. I mean, it's everything from billboards to subways to bus shelters to Facebook to Instagram to Google, like stuff that you see. And then a lot of stuff actually behind the scene that you don't, scenes that you don't, or because they're directed at certain people that read or interact or watch certain things. So as you get smarter and more sophisticated and you have better tools to service that, then you can do better segmentation. It's really about giving the most relevant message to the right person at the right time. That's really, that's that's the name of the game. Tell us about a marketing channel that you use, maybe in that 30, mm-hmm. that somebody would be surprised that you're spending on or something that is a little bit maybe more experimental, that it's just something you're trying out. Um, you know, when we started... Um, Direct mail was something that I thought we'd never do. Um, it's very antiquated, very old school, but actually it's changed a lot over time. And now actually, if you check your mail, you get a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that are that are hitting you in direct mail. And those interactions are modeled off your user bases and you know it's meant to give you interactions with customers that look like... Or prospects, people that could be customers, that look like your customers. And this the type of data wasn't previously available on that channel, so that's something that's evolved a lot over time. And you can do a lot of testing on that. So we'll test a postcard versus a trifold versus a gatecold fold versus a catalog. And all of those come in at different price points. And I guess the cost of interaction is the bottom line. Like You want to get the most bang for the buck on those. So someone might not care about a postcard. Someone might love the postcard. Same example for catalog. So it's really about finding what the optimal you know value proposition is for the customer as well as for the company on that. That's actually pretty less. I don't think a lot of people associate, unless they're in the space, associate kind of this idea of this modern, digitally native, you know, young brand yeah. with this sort of stuffy idea. I think a lot of people have about direct mail. But that to me is fascinating because so much of kind of the growth of let's just call sort of for lack of a better, the DTC Mm -hmm. industry, and I know there's lots of different phrases and words around it, but the DTC industry is fascinating to me right now because it's sort of bucking the early trends of what it was supposed to be. I mean, it was supposed to be this idea that, oh, it's Facebook grown, online only. Um, They'll grow primarily through word of mouth, Mm -hmm. and all of that is still true, but a lot of the hallmarks of growth are starting to look extraordinarily like other brands. There, the growth, uh, the growing up of the industry is interesting to me. At what point did you kind of feel, okay, now we have to stop acting one way and start acting sort of a different way? Was there a point in your evolution and what was, what was kind of the thinking behind that? We're always looking at your metrics and your numbers and they kind of tell the story. So if you live in the data, they tell you like, when a channel could be tapped out and you've pushed as far as it can go. But the truth is that any marketing channel 
all of them, all 30 that I said, um, they all interact with each other. So the targets that we set on all of them and the KPIs are all very, very different. It's not one consistent number because one is dependent on the other. It's really hard to to hold an Instagram ad to the same accountability of a, a bus shelter ad outside. And just mm-hmm. when you measure that, it's really, really difficult to understand. And once you understand it, you have to understand like what the variables are and how to measure that in itself. In many ways, though, like you said, like TV, billboards, brick and mortar stores, these were things that the original wave of DTC brands said would never do. And I remember myself saying (laughs) that we'd never do that. And lo and behold, we just had a pop-up store and we're carving out a retail strategy as well for for the future. But these are things that I would never thought we'd do. Um, Why did you never think you'd do that? Get us inside your head as, you know. I think the real estate market and brick and mortar retail were very, very different than they are. As you could see, you know, whether it's in... Manhattan here in Soho and different neighborhoods as well as in malls across the country is a lot of vacancy that's created a lot of opportunity for new brands to go in. I don't really believe that retail brick and mortar retail like died or there was a retail box. I think it just got really really bad is what happened. <laughs> and it was also a structure of what the leases looked like and they gave the brands very very little reason incentive to reinvent themselves and be creative and provide a better experience. They were very much entrenched as the incumbent the incumbents in a mall doing their thing and they had the steady traffic. Mm-hmm. Now as the landscape's change and they have pressure from all these new brands that are hungry, agile and scrappier and have kind of a new playbook, it's put a lot of pressure on them. So as that's happened, the market's really kind of shifted and it's given brands like us an opportunity to really slide in there and present something new. And it's just a different shopping experience. In our category, people would go to department stores or big box stores and search for the products, whether it's sheets, pillows, blankets, comforters, whatever it is, towels, and so on. Now we're just providing them with a different shopping experience that's a little more curated, that's a little more thoughtful, a little more guided. I mean, you touched on the point that we want everyone to interact with our customer service team. We have a very robust customer service team, all based here in the States. And the the idea is that they'll help you find the right product for you. So you said I need a comforter. I hope that you bought one of our lightweight comforters. I mean, here the weather's getting better and people use that all year round. Had you bought our all-season comforter, that might have been a little too warm for you going into the summer. And we want to make sure you have Hmm. the right experience. And really, that's like another channel for us is that person-to-person interaction and the ability to to really have that exchange. Let's go a little um, a little into the weeds of kind of that customer journey again, sure. because you just sort of touched on so many different points of it. Um, you mentioned that somebody who's coming in, you know, is like a first-time visitor, kind of, but uh, will have a very different experience. So I had a very different experience from, mm-hmm. say, a repeat customer. Yep. What is overall kind of your philosophy on this journey? Because a lot of it has these, you know, hallmarks again of how publishers kind of sell magazines. There's a lot of insights and lessons people are taking from different parts of the industry. Um, what have you found has worked for you? What are diff- some of the different journeys that you're sending people on um, that you can kind of detail out for people? Yeah. I mean, the truth is that there's no like silver bullet. Like there's no single channel that's like the workhorse that like gets all the conversions and like really works the hardest. It's really a combination of all of them. Mm-hmm. With our category specifically, it's really hard to sell somebody on the products kind of spontaneously. It's a considered purchase. Everybody has different decor. They have different body temperature, like preferences at night, their rooms, what they like, their aesthetics, Mm. like the materials. They have very, very... So there is a few days from the first interaction till the time to purchase. Now, within that time period, we want to make them... We want to supply them with the information to make the most informed decision they can. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's to buy something from us or maybe not because it's not the right product for them, we want them to be informed because that's bad also. If somebody if somebody 
reads something in our marketing funnel and then they buy, but it's the wrong product for them, then they return it or they exchange or something. And that's costly for us and we don't want to do that. We And it's also a hassle for the customer. It's a bad customer experience. And we think about that all like end to end. That's pre- interesting because a lot of, I think, brands... Uh, DTC brands especially are sort of in this like no problem bring on the returns and I've always wondered no, we how a, they can simply afford it. Like, we have an I, exceptionally low return rate and hmm. it's because we'll take our time to inform the customers we want to make sure they get the right product and that they're super happy with it and we just want it to be like very easy for them. We've added things like same day shipping to make it even easier and actually we don't even it's free and we don't even market that. It's more of a surprise and delight moment. Um, we include things in the box from time to time that are a little surprise and delight moments for them mm-hmm. as well, just to further enrich the relationship with them. So it, it's really about that end-to-end experience. Now, when you, you're going back to your original question, there's no one channel that like automatically makes somebody buy. You give people inspiration, then you give them education, and then you give them a little motivation for it, and then you know hopefully that's enough to, to get them excited. I could example, you see a billboard, you're not just gonna go run to your computer and buy because you saw a billboard, right? You're like, what's this? I've never heard of this. So you go, you investigate a little bit more, Maybe you'll sign up for our email list. Then we'll send you some education on why we're different, what our products are like. So now you're interested. Now you have a 10% coupon. So you have a little motivation to use it and mm-hmm. you know take a chance on it. You're interested. You're considering it. And now you have a little motivation. So we've given you, think we think everything we can to make an informed decision. And all those touch points are interacting with each other for one unified customer experience. Mm-hmm. If we just sent you a coupon, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd probably throw it in the garbage. If we didn't do anything besides the billboard, there's really like a disconnect there. So everything we have to do, and when I say, I just touched on three, but talk about 30, talk about people that listen to the radio and their drive to work or podcasts or not, like all these different touch points kind of unify um, to make one customer journey like complete. What is your strongest signal of customer intent? Like what is what is the one thing you look at and say, these are the people likeliest because the, there's a certain signal that you're looking I for? I think the truest health of like your how strong your brand is and the intent of people is your direct and organic traffic. So people going directly to your website or searching for the brand on Google or Yahoo or Bing, wherever they, they search, um, that shows that the people have intent and they're looking for you. Now, if somebody is just doing a generic search for sheets or pillows, they're probably at the very, very beginning of the search. The, uh, of the journey, they may not even know that we sell that. They may not know who we are, so they're just looking for the product. Then it's on us to compete to educate the customer and you know present ourselves as the best option. And in that case, you're competing with potentially brands that have existed for longer. Sure. Or brands with bigger budgets, brands with more manpower, um, and that's when you have to be really smart and tactical about that. And again, we don't want every single customer. Like, of course, we want every customer we can. But with that said. It's not for everybody. The price point isn't for everybody. The products, you know, the certain tastes or designs, like they're not for everybody. So we want to make sure that we're interacting with the right people. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit internally. Um, again, I remember when you first started, a lot of talk around. I think it was like a two to three person team, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. and you've grown significantly uh, since then. Significant. We were just, we've just, we were just talking before we started recording about how much more you're doing yourselves, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, tell us about kind of how the company set up. Um, and especially this idea of doing it yourself. Because I think one way you mentioned already that I think direct-to-consumer brands are forcing change on the industry, I think, in some really positive ways. One is, you know, asking for better lease terms, asking for a new way of doing brick and mortar, asking for a new sort of non-mall-like approach um, to physical retail. But another one is exactly that, doing it yourselves and kind of being a little bit more in charge of your marketing destiny. Um, So tell me about how that's set up. So we do everything in-house, everything, everything. So 
I'll take our pop-up, for example. We did it 100% in-house. So we have, our team is 40 now, plus um, additionally, we have a customer service team that's about 30 people in addition to that. So in total, we're about 70 now, but in our headquarters in Brooklyn, we're 40 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Of that, about uh, seven or eight of them are creative services. So we have essentially an in-house creative agency. We used to outsource everything. So when we were a two to three person team, we were just outsourcing whatever we could. Agency for acquisition marketing, agency for design, agency for PR, agency for everything. As times went on, we tried to internalize a lot of these competencies because we feel like we could be more strategic, more agile, more nimble on that, and more Mm -hmm. cost effective on that because um, it's people that are all very, very closer knit and they can hear and see what's going on elsewhere in the company. So it makes it a little more fluid rather than putting in briefs back and forth and waiting for a few days for a turnaround time. Um, if we talk specifically about creative, we have an extremely talented team and they do everything from our out of home ads to TV script writing for commercials that we've done to everything that you'll see online to our website design and allows us to be really unified and really, really nimble on that. So, yeah, we have. We have uh, acquisition marketing team, retention mm-hmm. marketing team. We have communications team that encompasses PR, mm-hmm. social partnerships. And How does so just control kind of figure into this? Just being able to be in control of pretty much really every part of the business too, especially to you as a founder. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question. I, I, I can't do everything. And I've tried to surround myself with people that are smarter than me, that are better than me at these things. With that said, I really need to understand what they're doing and what their expertise is. So our philosophy is everybody has to, well, the first thing everybody does when they start is they do customer service for us for about two weeks. And the reason is, is so you can get an understanding of the customer that we're, in, that we're interacting with. So if you're in operations, then you want to understand what the pay- what are people writing in about that's a pain point. If it's like lost packages or delayed deliveries mm-hmm. or inaccurate fulfillment on like what's in the box. Like these types of things are fixable, but I want people to know what they're what they're doing mm-hmm. and what the customers are saying. If it's marketing, it's, you know, I read this, so I did this. And I want them to know that that there's either a disconnect or it's working great or so on. If it's design, you know, I want people to read customer service tickets. If I'm talking about a new person that comes into the company and say, like, I saw this ad and I loved it and I wanted to buy it, or that was I was inspired by by some some ad they saw or something like which we mm-hmm. see all the time on that. And, you know, they should know that and do more of that is what I want them to do, not just be like hunting in the dark really on, on what yeah. they're doing. So our philosophy is do everything yourself and it starts with the customer service, but Everybody that's come on board with the company, I'm trying to think right now if anyone hasn't. No, no one, ha- like everybody's done multiple jobs. And the way we do it is you come in and you do your job, that's your core competency, and you also do the two adjacent jobs and you really learn them. And yeah, you have a full plate, but then you really understand what these two adjacent jobs are and what you need in order to fill them. And that's how we built the company really. So then we slice off one of those and we'll hire somebody full time that's even better at that. Mm-hmm. And that way, the person can concentrate on their core competency. And now we have someone even more powerful in that seat. And yeah. then we keep growing it and growing it and growing it and growing it based on that. Would you would you ever consider kind of, you know, is even the idea of, okay, even if you end up needing to just have an army of freelance talent instead of ever kind of really outsourcing it entirely to a different company? We tried that. So we tried that like in early days. So that was more of like a transitional phase between like the full agency model versus the in-house model. And it was really hard to to keep accountability, to keep... 
um, deliverability of all everything that we needed in a timely manner and just to wrangle everybody and keep everyone on the same page. It's really good. We have you know a huddle once a week where everybody's on the same page and aligns in terms of what's going on in the company, what's launching. And it's really hard to do that when you're working on with freelancers that are working on multiple projects or multiple com- companies. Also, I like to keep a lot of our tactics and strategies in-house and you know have people concentrate on that 100%. So if they're doing that and they're learning from us, theoretically, right? If they're interacting with our entire team, so they can take those learnings elsewhere and I'd rather just internalize them if we can. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the stretchability of your category, because another thing I find really interesting about um, just a lot of different brands in this DTC space, how mm-hmm. much more they go into what to me sometimes feels like not exactly adjacent categories, but there is something in there. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we just uh, we just reported on a way, you know, doing uh, starting to look at products in the wellness and beauty space in travel sizes, which I get it. They're a luggage brand travel somewhat adjacent, but again, not exactly a core competency of a brand that began. Mm-hmm. Um, I see why one would, but I also see the challenges there. Let's talk about the stretchability of kind of your product, because you obviously started with one thing, have now moved mm-hmm. on to multiple product lines. Where do you kind of see kind of categories and how they play into what your core competency really is? I mean, can you really do anything within reason that has to do with sleep? Technically, yeah. yeah. It's not even so much sleep. So so there are other brands out there that are that are talking a lot about sleep and what they want to do and disruption of sleep. Ours, we think about it more holistically as comfort. So you're, you should be comfortable when you sleep, but you should also be comfortable when you're in your robe or in your towel or anywhere else in your house. And the, the really the domain that we're shooting to own is before work, after work, and your weekends and when you're in your house. So that's everything about that experience um, that you can imagine in terms of just being comfortable and hanging out in your house. We're very, very like, we want to really play into a lazy homebody, comfortable lifestyle is really what we want. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Just, you know, where How did you know what I did last weekend? <laughs> I mean, there's... <laughs> Staying in is cool. I mean, now, staying like, in has no, become there's cool. No, there's no doubt about it. People, you know, binge watch shows and just hang mm-hmm. out, and they'd rather stay in. And you know, if it's a bottle of wine and Netflix and chill or whatever it is, um, people want to do that, and we want to cater to that and further empower and enable people to do that further. But so. you've given yourself a pretty wide window here. You're For not sure. saying we are a sheets company. We're not. We are a. We're not. Um, was that sort of from day one strategic or is that sort of something you learned along the way? Because, look, you guys were, what, shopping for sheets, mm-hmm. right? And couldn't find well-made, affordable things that were brought to you and mm-hmm. made uh, made in the way you wanted, which is where you began with a very pr- one need, one product. Yep. And now you want to own comfort. Yeah, I think it's... I think you have to start there. And I think some of the best brands that have done that recently have started with one product. I think no matter what, and this is just my philosophy, you know, it's not it's not like set in stone, sure. is you need a hero product that, that really like it defines your business and it's where you kind of made your mark from the And get-go. that to you is the sheets. That's for us was the sheets category okay. and it still is. And it is the workhorse for us and it's what people find out about us. It's usually what people purchase first, but then they love the product, they love the experience, they love the brand, and then they tend to, to dive into those other categories and those other products thereafter. Um, if you think about brands like, I don't know, like Warby Parker, it was their $95 frames. Yes. Um, I'm wearing one right now, but they also have titanium frames, sunglasses, other things right, that they went into, but it's really about that $100 or $95 frame that they started with, including the lenses. But arguably, it's, I, or it's still glasses. <laughs> it's, still it's still the glasses. thing on the I, What I find fascinating is really, I mean, what you're talking about, comfort, or what, what Away is talking about, which is anything to do with hospitality and travel. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, this is a very new way of working, or maybe it's just 
just a way back to the way things always have. Like Nike now makes hijabs, but it's a sports brand. Like Nike's a brand we talk about all the time. Sure. Nike start. It's a great example about Nike with hijabs. Like they started with a waffle running shoe, and it was a running shoe company, and that was their hero product for a long time. Like I bet you know Phil Knight, Bill Bowerman, they would have never thought that they're going to make all these different hijabs. If you told asked them in the seventies they're going to make that, they would have said no way. We make sneakers, right? Not. Like no chance of, of that. And um. You know, if you think about a brand like Bonobos, it started with pants that fit better, right? And then now they do all kinds of apparel mm-hmm. because you know they've they've kind of built the brand on those pants, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens after that. Away, same thing. Like if you come out of the gates and you're like, we want to do everything travel, then you kind of have an identity crisis with that. Well, and then the investors don't exactly look at you as like, oh, these guys don't know what they're. Well, it's a catch twenty two because <laughs> people want a big addressable market, right? And when you think about travel, it's it could be anything. It's huge, right? But it's a lot not focused, so. They've really built their brand around great luggage and, you know, that looks great and they have a loyal following and then they've built their base from there. People trust them and very, very similar to us, you Mm -hmm. know, people trust us and we have a great core product and then people trust us to buy more of the adjacent products to really fill out the assortment. Mm -hmm. For us, it's comfortable in your home. For them, it's anything travel. And I think those are very, very like parallel. Mm -hmm. How do you manage kind of product development, R&D, and then the marketing with something like this? Again, the, the window is very big. You mm-hmm. comfort, but then you also started with the hero product. You've got new products now. You're probably planning more new products, etc. Yep. Um, how do you, again, as somebody who's running the company, then try to figure out timelines and what makes sense and when not to go into something really fast? Because again, you've probably got aggressive, ambitious targets for the year, but at the same time, you cannot risk kind of dilution to the point that you lose sight of what's mm-hmm. really going on. I mean, it's sort of that. To me, the interesting thing is sort of matching that managing that sustainable growth idea with also just really you'd have to expand because this is sort of what's something you've planned for, right? For sure. Uh, you constantly need to be pushing further to to reinvent, to reimagine and just take it further. So that might be reinventing the current products you have just to make them better and take your customer feedback and just keep improving it. And also launching newer and newer, newer categories and products. For us, we're about a year out right now. So we have a roadmap um, that takes us about midway through next year of products that we're launching. And that's as far ahead as we've ever been, honestly. So okay. what, really what it's been for the last five years is idea, let's do it as fast as possible, which tends to be you know three or six months. Now, we have a little traffic in terms of like our product development. Now we have a product development team, first of all. So that used to be my wife, Vicky, and I that did all of the ideation on that. Now we have a lot more that we do. So we have a really, really talented product development team, and they do all... The, the PD and the design work that comes with that and the R&D on that front. And then they're constantly working and they're focused. And when you have somebody doing that 100% of the time, then you can get better product and more output on that. So we're thinking about seasonality in terms of what customers want what. You know, is this something well, you for- you just mentioned heavy comforter. Right, for, right exactly. It's important to have that. I mean, that's that's seems a little bit more obvious, but like there are some that actually aren't as obvious in terms of being more tactical about what people need and what you can offer them to kind of enrich their experience on that. Um, which we're So how do we do that, you also asked, and how do we think about that is it's a little bit of push and pull. So we push stuff that we have, you know, same that we start the brand and the company, like the company, everything about it. We knew what we wanted and we were the customer. So we put it out there and we're still the customer at heart. So everyone in our team. So we have a feeling and we crowdsource it from within our company and then we, we push it forward. Mm-hmm. Also, we survey our customers, um, co- like segments of our customers every quarter. 
So we're asking questions about A, about like NPS and, and satisfaction, of course, always gut check that stuff, but also, what do you wish we had? What do you love? What do you not love? What are other brands you're shopping at? Where'd you buy? Where are you buying your next thing? Where are you buying your last? Like, we're always trying to get new data and information so we can inform our decision. That's more of the pull aspect of it that we're pulling from our customers and we're really marrying those two and saying, we think they should, this really, they're, they work together. They want this, we had a good idea, let's do it, let's mm -hmm. go ahead. And that, that tends to be how it is. Sometimes it's a little slower to do that because you're really methodical and tactical on it, but it tends to be worthwhile. You uh, mentioned kind of, you know, the pop-up uh, a few times. Uh, let's talk about your physical kind of store strategy. Sure. Obviously, a category that very naturally lends itself to it. Sure, People sure. want to touch things that they're mm -hmm. going to sleep on and sleep under. Um, at the same time, kind of, we've also seen kind of the store is no longer just the store. The store is an experience. Mm -hmm. um, what is your vision for physical stores when it comes to the company? You know, we had a really, really successful pop-up. So we ran a pop-up uh, November through February. So we had holiday season and then really like that first part of the year, which it was very mysterious to us because we wanted to see what kind of interaction we'd get. We knew holiday, we have, we have a good customer base and uh, we have a lot of conviction and belief in the brand. So we thought holiday would be pretty strong, but we really wanted to see what January and February would be like. And they actually ended up being stronger than November, December, which was surprising for us. Um, we were... Yeah, it was a profitable endeavor for us. So that was also surprising of how quickly that happened. But most importantly, we got a lot of customer feedback in there and who we needed to attract in the store, what they wanted about the merchandising, the experience, the size, like what needed to be there, which is really informing our future strategy that we're you know, working on presently. Okay, I'm going to leave you uh, leave you with that vague answer. A <laughs> um, couple last questions. I mean, let's step away from from Brooklyn and for a minute. Um, but I think that there is a narrative now, there's a couple of narratives with direct-to-consumer right now that mm -hmm. I'm interested in. One is, you know, sort of category-defining brands are being founded and grown right now that are changing the way sort of marketing is being done, changing the way brands are being thought of. I mean, you just mentioned, we just talked about Nike just now, but it took them so long to do mm -hmm. all this. And now you've got shorter timeframes, everything's happening quickly. At the same time, this idea that there's just so much money being pumped into this industry and no market can sustain these many number of new brands mm -hmm. in any category. It's just, it's, it's impossible statistically. Where does kind of this like DTC carnage slash DTC shakeout slash the IPOs with the unicorns, there's so much going on. Where do you kind of begin to make sense of it as part of this industry? Um, and in some ways kind of taking, taking your company out of it a little bit, but mm -hmm. Overall, where do you think of the health of this industry? It's a great question. Um, I think it's not tremendously difficult to make a product, so but to build a brand is very, very difficult, and that's what really defines it. So, if we talk about the companies that like ride sharing or whatever, well, you asked about DTC, right? That's not like a new thing, right? Is like a car service per se but it's the brand they've built and the network effects that come with that and really the loyalty that you get from people that's part of a brand it's not really the concept of somebody driving you someplace in our category it's not so much about the sheets i think it's table stakes to have a great product when you come to market with a brand what really lasts and defines and really makes the companies succeed and the, what defines the winners and the losers is the ones that build a strong brand that really get you 
360 degrees into a holistic experience of what that brand stands for. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have an idea of what the pre-purchase experience should be, what the actual product and purchase experience should be, and the post-purchase experience in terms of the interaction to inform you and of what else we're doing and keep you in touch and keep you in the loop for a long-term relationship. It's not snake oil or like a quick transaction or just buy this gadget. It's more of come into our ecosystem of our brand and we will take care of you hopefully forever when you outfit your entire home and everything in it that we want to be part of that. So that's really what defines it. And there's a lot of congestion in a lot of categories in this that there's copycats all over the place. Somebody sees some success and then they try and mimic it. But you can mimic the product, but it's hard to mimic the messaging and the brand and the design and everything that goes mm-hmm. with that. And we've seen that over and over in many, many categories, whether it's right. beauty, whether it's luggage, um, you touched on a way. Like and they in have some ways these categories are almost better at, because if you take sort of product as table stakes idea, these categories and these companies are, are really great marketers. Mm-hmm. That's really what it is. And yeah. the better marketers will do better. But is, is some of this a time thing? Because obviously a lot of these companies are still relatively new, right? It's like 2013, 2014, 2015, a lot of them were founded. Um, and I think I have heard this idea that like this year's the year because it's sort of maybe mm-hmm. it's because it's the five year mark. I'm not yep. sure what the reasons are. And we've seen a ton of the billion dollar valuations. Maybe that's forcing it. But there has to be a time time issue in some ways to this because every yeah. industry goes through this, right? You get a ton of attention, you get tons of VC, yeah. like ad tech went through this. Yeah, it'll know, sort itself ago. out without sure. a doubt. It'll sort itself out. I mean, Mattress is in a box started with one or three players, right? Now there's 200 of them. I think that's what it and was. Then, yeah, I think it's a little over 200 of them. And most people only know, you know, 10 to 20 of them, but they they exist, those out there. And can the people that founded the, those 180 other ones, can they make that a big business and survive with that? I'm not so sure. I think for the moment, maybe they can, you know, try, but I think us, actually, all of these will consolidate into a few players. Now, I don't think it's a winner takes all in any category. So I think the there will always be multiple brands and people want the selection that's part of you know our society and what the consumer wants is optionality. So I never think there's, an, whether in our category or it's mattresses or luggage or whatever, or beauty, there's never going to be one brand that wins in, of a DTC brand. But I think there's options at different price points, different qualities, different value propositions. You know, there's the customer that cares about something that's really, really eco-friendly. There's some that care about it's really, really affordable. There's some that care it's really, really chic. And they're willing to pay different premiums or prices for those value propositions. And it's really hard to be a jack of, tr- jack of all trades and really please everybody. I think that's impossible, actually. So you have to know who your customer is and really kind of like stick to your guns that you built a relationship with that customer. And that's your audience. And some audiences will be bigger than others, naturally. They're not all the same, but I think I think there's definitely going to be multiple winners in all of these landscapes with consolidation, like you said. But I don't think it's just going to like totally consolidate into like one winner takes all. I love it. The most rational uh, explanation I've mm-hmm. heard yet on the show. Good. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Making Marketing. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is, of course, Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Leave us a review and a rating, hopefully five stars, on iTunes. I'll read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show next week. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with another episode very soon.